Anything that's good needs protection in the fallen world. And when God promises to give prophets, he also sets up boundaries around the prophets in such a way that the people who should be open to the ministry of his prophet will not be open to the ministry of false prophets. And that's where the rest of it comes from. It says in verse 19, It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, you better listen to him. But then it says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Here's the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. I mentioned Benny Hinn last week, and the essence of Benny Hinn's ministry is presumptuously to speak words from the Lord. He is constantly making claims in his ministry that what he is saying is a word from the Lord. Now, either he's right, and when he speaks, he speaks ex cathedra. It's amazing that Protestants would buy that who reject Rome. Because the good thing about the Pope is he absolutely never speaks ex cathedra. He never claims that he has infallible authority. Now, David is going to take me to task in an email after this saying, well, in point of fact, back in one, when was the last time, David? The Assumption of Mary. Yeah, the Assumption of Mary was last time that the Pope spoke ex cathedra and claimed infallibility. 1950. But every single time you listen to Benny Hinn, he does that. Every single time. It's just a constant theme through what he says, that he is infallible. That God says this, God says this. Now, if I were to say, God says thou shalt not commit adultery, you'd know that I'm not claiming to speak ex cathedra because I'm just quoting scripture and every word that the Bible says is true. But if I say, God says that my wife's hair should be longer, well, you know something else is going on there, right? <laughs> you know, it's not me speaking. And if I say God says this church will grow to be a thousand, he has told me that this church will be a thousand, you look at me and you go, gag me. I mean, it's so disgusting that a man would claim that God told him something that's so obviously the product of his own, uh, his own sinful, jealous, uh, greedy heart. And, and so... I want you to learn the word presumptuously. This is somebody who claims the authority of God for a direct utterance which God did not tell him. And if you start believing that when some man gets on a television set and says that God has said that you are to give him money, and that's what it all amounts to. I mean, if you have any discernment at all and you listen to the television evangelists that speak presumptuously for God, you know what they're constantly doing is telling you in the name of God to give them money. It all amounts to that. All right? If you don't have discernment towards that, then what will happen is the real negative is that you will then not have ears that are attuned to real words from God that come directly from Him. In other words, if everything is a word from God, then what? Nothing is a word from God. If Benny Hinn is speaking God's 
direct commandments to you through a television set, then I am not speaking God's direct commandments to you when I preach from the Word. Now, this is also the reason why if you come in for counseling to elders or deacons or pastors in our church or older women, and you say to them, should we use birth control? Or you say to them, uh, do you believe that my husband and I should move? We will say to you, well, what are the issues? And you say, well, as it turns out, we have a bunch of bad debts here, and if we leave town, maybe they won't follow us. Well, then we'll probably say to you, uh, it, it would be wrong for you. And we might even say, if you keep being resistant to our counsel, you know, God says you shouldn't leave town to escape your debts. Why? Because Scripture says that we're not to steal. But if you say, well, my mother is, is getting older and we feel that we need to be around her, we'll say, well, you know, the Bible says that this is good for us to honor our father and mother. But we can't say infallibly whether or not you should go or not go because this is something that is uh, adiaphora. It's outside of Scripture. This is something that the Bible doesn't speak directly to. So if we were to speak in God's name to you and say, yes, that's the will of the Lord, we are speaking presumptuously. Now you might say, well, it would be very good for you to encourage them to go ahead and be with their mother as she gets older. Yeah, it would be good, but it's not a command of God. And so... Notice, God gives us the gift of prophets and then God immediately surrounds the prophets with guards so that you value the ministry of prophets properly. And one of those guards is, don't listen and don't be afraid of prophets who claim to have a word from the Lord presumptuously. And the whole world is filled with men like that today and women. And if you don't recognize that for what it really is, namely false prophets... And, and these false prophets will say things that are directly contrary to Scripture. I haven't even gone into that. There are other ways we know that they're not speaking from God because oftentimes these prophets will tell you things that they claim God told them to tell you that are directly contrary to the Word of God. But even when they don't say things that are directly contrary, they just claim to have a direct word from the Lord. Why would you reject the Pope and accept them? It just makes absolutely no sense. So... You will not value the Word of God properly if you allow everyone to claim that they have a word from the Lord. Now, does this mean that I believe God never gives people revelation today outside of the Word of God? And the answer is actually no. I do believe that God still does give directions to people directly. But those directions are always taken tremblingly, okay? And they're always submitted to the Word of God and to counsel. So if you claim to have had a dream that says that, you know, you should go ahead and live with a woman without benefit of marriage, okay, and you are wise enough to get counsel, and the counsel is wise enough to tell you that's a word from Satan, it's a false prophecy, Satan is deluding you, then you're wise if you listen. But if you come and you say, I had a dream that I was to move to, to New Jersey and, and to play Major League Soccer, well, who knows? You know, maybe this is your own ego and, and maybe it is some sort of direction from the Lord. And you will notice that that's a very unusual thing that I'm holding to, that I do believe God sometimes gives us directions from our dreams. Uh, I've asked before, and I could ask you now, but don't raise your hand, but I bet a number of you believe that God at a specific point in your life made it very clear to you through a dream, through reading Scripture in a way where Scripture said something 
that wasn't, I don't know how to say this, but the best example of this is Augustine, where Augustine became a Christian, and he opened the Bible and point blanks, and, and he claimed that God gave him specific direction for his life at that time by where he opened in the Bible. Well, that's weird. And yet many of us have had that weird thing happen to us. And so it's not that God never does that, but that is absolutely not to be said, thus says the Lord. It is absolutely under the authority of everything God has said in his word, and it is always to be brought under the authority of other wise counselors. So uh, if you want to talk to me more about this, or or elders, or anybody afterwards, feel free. But... uh, be wise in what you consume on television. We all would understand if I said there's a lot on MTV that you should never subject yourself to, and everybody go, yeah. And I say, hey, there's an awful lot on Benny Hinn, namely everything that you should not subject yourself to. And all of a sudden, everybody gets uptight like I've said something that we all shouldn't know without me even saying it. It's incomprehensible to me how we as Christians will feed on things that claim the name of Jesus but have absolutely nothing of the spirit of Jesus. Nothing. Where is the suffering servant in Benny Hinn? Where is it? So, that's not a sermon. I know you feel like it is. (laughs) Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come to you and not to other men, but to your word and to your spirit. And we love the fact that you have laid down in a book, it seems so contrary to the wisdom of man, where so many books are written. Uh, Thus spake Zarathustra, and all of the books that only reflect the foolishness of man through the ages. And yet you have deigned to lower yourself to use print, and books, and scrolls, and writing, and words, and holy men of old who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we pray that you will help us to value this book so highly that no false prophet, no uh, counterfeit revelation or prophecy will be able to lodge in us, that we will not live in fear of going against false prophets, but that we will only fear God. Father, help us to love this word. Help us to find it, as the prophets have said, sweeter than honey. Help us to find it meat for our souls, milk for the newborn. Help us, Lord, to be devoted to this book. We confess that we have a great battle each day opening it up. And we know why this is the case, because the evil one hates this word and seeks to silence it in our lives. And yet, Father, we cling to it. As it was sung earlier, it is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. But, Father, we don't worship this book. We worship you, and we submit to this book because you have spoken it. We pray that as we read this book, that our minds will more and more be led to see your sovereignty, your mercy, your grace and tenderness, your long-suffering, your patience, your kindness, your truthfulness, and that we will see that the God that we love is a God who is merciful, a God that no man could invent, a God that the philosophers could never have found, a God who is there and who is not silent and who has poured out his love on mankind such that all those who come to him through the blood of his Son will be saved. 
Father, I pray this morning as we come to the study of your servant Joseph that we will constantly see Jesus in Joseph. We pray that we will see how Joseph himself gave himself to submission to you and was blessed. We pray that we will see how you, through Joseph, fulfilled the promises that you had given hundreds of years before. We pray that you will help us to love the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus and that we will see how it is that you work among men. We thank you, Father, this morning for the news of Rosemary and we claim this as your answer to our prayer. Now we pray that the radiation will work in her such that she will be cleansed from all of her uh, sickness, that her body will be restored to health, that she may continue to be the wife and mother that you have given to Kevin and to the children. Father, give Kevin and the children wisdom and patience. Help them not to become callous to Rosemary's sufferings. And Lord, we pray for Rosemary that you will give her faith, that she will continue to trust that you are a God who loves to give good gifts to your children. Father, we pray for other homes which are in uh, conflict and in need in our church. We pray for those whose marriages are under great strain, for those who have children who are bitter and envious and jealous towards one another. We pray for the little ones who are timid and fearful, who uh, wonder if, Father, you will provide them everything they need in their lives. I pray for the young men and women who are transferring from childhood to adulthood and wonder about their future callings as wives and mothers, as husbands and fathers, as workers. Lord, guide us in the path that you have planned for us. Help us to cultivate counselors and friends who will speak to us truth and who will give us an objective view of our lives. As the difficulties of living together have set in at the campus, we pray that you will give uh, roommates love for one another and the ability to forgive and to forget. Help us to be thoughtful in the way we live with one another, not sloppy and not rude and not tactless, but gentle and kind and compassionate and thoughtful, considering others better than ourselves. We pray for Ron and Doris as they minister to the refugees that are uh, in the Ivory Coast and are now coming under uh, the threat of military reprisal. Protect those who believe in your name. Bring peace to that nation. We pray that your will will be carried out and that Ron and Doris will be good testimonies to your faithfulness and your mercy and your love. We thank Father of David and Terry Ann as they have now made it to Angola and are at the Theological College of Central Africa. We thank you that they made it safely. We thank you that you have brought them to this nation to be ministered to and to minister to others. And we pray that from the beginning their ministry will be fruitful. Father, I am very aware of my own sinfulness as I come to preach and I pray that you will uh, forgive me for my sins and that you will be pleased to use me to feed your flock that the men and women and the boys and girls that are here will be strengthened by this work and that I will be faithful in the work uh, 
thank you, Father, for giving the gift of these people to me. Thank you for the way I am allowed to do this work. And I pray, Lord, that you will use it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles up as we turn this morning to the study of uh, Old Testament man named Joseph. Uh, I'd ask you to turn, please, to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to spend a number of Lord's Days in the morning going through Joseph in the evening. Tonight I'm going to be speaking um, on the theme that I announced a couple of weeks ago uh, the predestination, the election, the sovereign call that God gives to uh, men and women to believe in him and the way that this call precedes uh, our response. This morning we're going to turn to Joseph. And before we read this chapter, there are a few things that we ought to know about Joseph, um, which I'm about to tell you. Number one, uh, Joseph, if you look at the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis can be an account, uh, can be seen as an account of a number of great men of God. If you go through and you think who's talked about there, you think of men like Abraham and Enoch and Noah, men like Abel, killed by his brother, having something in common with Joseph, men like Isaac and Jacob. And here in Genesis 37, we begin the story of Joseph. Joseph takes up more space in the book of Genesis than anyone else. Um, Now, what do we know about Joseph? Well, we know that Joseph was one of 12 brothers and that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel came from those 12 brothers except that they didn't all, because Joseph was more important than the other brothers. And how do we know that? We know that because Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who themselves became the names of tribes of Israel. So instead of Joseph just getting one tribe, he got two. And those two were Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you look at the book of Genesis and you watch the flow of Genesis... Um, It's very interesting how it's all pointing to uh, this life of Joseph at the end that takes up a number of chapters and that with this life of Joseph, the accounts of the great men in the book of Genesis draw to a close. He is the last of these great men, but he is not the least. Um, Joseph's story takes up more space in Genesis than any of the others for a reason, and that is There's no life in the Old Testament that is such a clear type of the life of Jesus Christ. You've heard me quote Spurgeon saying that any place you read in the Old Testament, try to find the quickest path to Jesus Christ. Well, you don't have to look hard when it comes to the life of Joseph. From the very beginning, the theme of Joseph's life, we'll see, is the life of suffering leading into glory. And as we examine the details of Joseph's life, we'll be struck by the many ways that it parallels the details of the life of Jesus. Now, you might wonder what possible connection there could be between two stories which are separated by so many thousand years in time. And this is one of the places where you'll find Bible scholars um, 
waxing eloquent about how the story of Joseph is put together by a bunch of different people very late in the history of Israel trying to go back and create a climate in which other things that the Bible Bible writers want to say come true. In other words, it couldn't be possible that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture and the Holy Spirit knew beforehand what would happen. All right? And what we see in the life of Joseph is either an after-the-fact creation of something that will uh, reinforce something later by people who are sophisticated enough to do that, or we see a type which points to an anatype. We see, uh, as you will, backwards in time, a shadow that points forward to the real thing. We see the life of Joseph being the type and Christ being the antitype or the fulfillment of everything that Joseph promises. All right, And that is what we're dealing with with this man Joseph. Uh, through him we see the plan that God has to save his people. Now you might say at this point, well, how? We'll get to that at the end again. But be thinking the whole time through our study of the book of, of, of the story of Joseph. Be thinking, how does it point to the salvation of the people of God? What does the story of Joseph have to do with us today? What does the story of Joseph have to do with the Old Testament people of God? How does it work? It's interesting that um, Joseph is still the account of part of Abraham's family. And you can see that very easily if you read the book of Genesis. You can see how father to son to son to son to son. All right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. Joseph is the transition point, though. That as the book of Genesis comes to an end, you'll start to see fulfilled one of the prophecies that God gave to Abram. The prophecy that his descendants would be what? The stars in the sky, innumerable. And, and not until recently do we have any idea how innumerable the stars in the sky. How many, Rita? I mean, just take a guess. Did they ever say how many? Nobody ever says. Like thousands? Our, our resident astronomer says it's an infinite number of stars. And you'll see this. It goes in Genesis from family, all of a sudden it becomes nation. All right? The people of God. Now let's read together this chapter. Uh, Genesis chapter 37. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph when 17 years of age, was pasturing with the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? 
Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams." But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph as his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh." And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, in this chapter... As we meet Joseph, we see that the homes of the ancients 
are an awful lot like our homes. It is a sad fact that many families are short on love and long on envy and hatred. And this family of Joseph was no different. Three separate times, if you watch carefully, this word hatred is used to describe the feelings of Joseph's brothers toward Joseph. Look at verse 4, and you'll see there that it says what? It says, so they what? Hated him. Then verse 5, when he told it his brothers, it says they hated him even more. And then in verse 8, it says, so they hated him even more. Now, we said that the life of Christ is in many places parallel to the life of Joseph, and this is one of those places. Think of the life of Christ and think of how he constantly suffered. He suffered in many ways. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He was humiliated. He was scoffed at. But he was also hated. And yet, just as Jesus Christ was strengthened by the things he suffered, so Joseph was strengthened by the things he suffered. Two of the verses in Scripture that seem to be, to me, most difficult to understand, and yet they are God's Word and so true, are found in Hebrews 2.10 where we read, speaking of Jesus, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, what? It was, excuse me, speaking of God, it says it was fitting for him to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So God perfected his son, Jesus, through sufferings. But then it's spoken even more explicitly in chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 8, where we read this. Speaking of Jesus, although he was a son, it says, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, it's hard for me to understand how Jesus, who was the perfect God, could have learned obedience through suffering. But it's also encouraging because if Jesus learned obedience through suffering, then I should be encouraged that I have the privilege of also learning obedience through suffering. And so ought you. The discipline you're under, whether it's in a class or whether it's from your father, is a good discipline. And you should comfort yourself that Jesus himself suffered and through it learned obedience. Well, this is true of this servant, Joseph, who is a type of Christ. Jesus and Joseph were both also sold for a handful of silver by a man with the Hebrew name of Judah, because Judas is actually the equivalent in Greek to the name Judah in the Old Testament. So they were sold for silver by a man with the same name. And Jesus and Joseph were both hated with a vengeance by those who knew them to the point that they became the objects of a plot of murder. Now, in verse 18, we're told that when Joseph was still a long way off, they planned his murder. And we're aware today of the tragic uh, facts statistics that tell us that the majority of murders committed in the United States are committed by uh, family members against loved ones, or as we would say, hated ones. Um, and yet the majority of those crimes are not uh, crimes of cold blood murder, but they're crimes of passion in the heat of a moment. A weapon is nearby, it's picked up, someone dies. That's not true with Joseph's brothers. They didn't all of a sudden hear this dream and just go crazy. 
Uh, although you could understand if they did. I mean, I hope as we read the story, you were sort of uh, turning red, blushing, as you heard Joseph wax eloquent about what a special man he was. I mean, who could, who could fault them for being sick of this guy? I had another dream. Oh, well, Joseph, tell us your dream. It sounds like good Sunday noon dinner conversation. I mean, you would get sick of him. After all, he's also standing in front of you with a special robe. And although it's said to be many colored, what, what, the, what the original language means is it was special in some way. We don't know whether it was many colors or just extra long. Or, but what it was was ostentatious. It spoke loudly. It spoke volumes to everybody that he was the favorite son. Well, in the murders that we have in our country today of family members, usually it is the murder of a passionate moment when something flips them over the edge. But not with these guys. The hatred of Joseph's brothers for him goes deeper than this. Because it says in verse 18 that they plotted his murder while he was still a long way off. And they planned it. There wasn't a sudden provocation to anger or a final straw that broke the camel's back. But all the brothers, but one of them, decided in cold blood to murder him. Now, uh, what was the cause of this hatred? Well, we're told in verse 4 that the brothers' hatred of Joseph went so deep that they couldn't even bring themselves to speak to him. Did you notice that in verse 4? It says there, it says, His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. In other words, they couldn't even greet him. Um, they couldn't even say hello to him. And this is a very sad depiction of a home. <clears throat> it's a place it ought to be where family, love, and affection rule, but they don't rule here. And I wonder this morning whether there are any homes here in our church family where there is no natural affection left. Now, maybe you don't think it's a serious thing when children despise one another. Maybe you have learned to live with children in your home that don't speak to each other. Maybe you have learned to live with a wife that will not speak to you or a husband who gives you the silent treatment. But if we watch this story, we'll see that envy and hatred build and build until they become our master and we become their slave. After Joseph's brothers carried out their plot to do away with him, they had to account to their father for his absence. And I think here we see even more than the despicable act of determining to kill him and then selling him into slavery. I think here we see sort of the supreme act of hatred for their brother because we're told that they came up with a gruesome story to tell their father, namely that an animal had torn him to pieces and then went through the charade of presenting the clothing to him as if he needed to identify this many-colored robe that they had seen for years and hated because it was the personification of Joseph's uh, being the favorite son. And they bring it into him, and, and he looks at it, and then he's inconsolable. He cries, and he cries, and he cries, and he cries. But what I think is the final slap in the face of any family love is what it tells us they did when he was inconsolable. Did you notice it? It says in verse 35, then what? All his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him. What do you think they said to him? You know? Anything they said was a lie. Dad, 
You know, Joseph's in a better place. You know, it's not going to cut it. Um, well, Dad, maybe his end was quick, brief. You know, well, Dad, you know, what about us? Don't you love us? I don't think that they would even have tried that. Um, so here they are, the hypocrisy and the charade of presenting the, the tunic and saying, Dad, is this Joseph? And then the, the hypocrisy of comforting him. Well, this is the hatred that there was in this home. Now, what are the reasons for the hatred? Well, Matthew Henry, and I was thinking this morning that um, so often our reading of Scripture would be improved if we would have uh, godly men of the past who have read and studied it their whole lives sitting next to us as we read it to help us understand it. And Matthew Henry is one of the best to have sitting next to you. And the way you do that is go on the web. You can download his commentaries. And you can just read them. Now, it's true that it's harder reading Matthew Henry than it is reading the Word of God. It's old, and it's so... everything, Every word in the Bible has so many comments on it that you get depressed sometimes because you can't keep up with Matthew Henry. So don't let him keep you from reading the Bible. But if you want somebody sitting next to you who's very wise, read Matthew Henry. And he comes up with four reasons why uh, he believes that this hatred developed in the home. Uh, two of them are very clear, very easy to see. Two are deeper. The first cause jumps out at us from the pages of Scripture. We're told in verse 3 that Israel or Jacob, both names refer to the same person. They say that he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And then in verse 4, we're told that Joseph's brothers knew that their dad loved him more. Favoritism in a home is not a good way of building uh, unity, is it? Um, it's a seedbed for hatred. And when you add to this special affection for Joseph a visual reminder, that sort of takes you over the edge. I mean, it would be one thing to know sort of subterraneanly, you know, but when it's right there in your face, every time you look at him in the clothing that he wears, you know, it's like Dad gave him a big ring, you know, huge diamond. Every time the sun hits it, it blinds you. Well, it's even worse than that. It's everything he's wearing, and it shows that his father treats him as a favorite son. Children, even at a very young age, quickly notice preferential treatment. They're very sensitive to it, and children will themselves have a tendency to treat their children with preferential treatment, playing favorites among their children if they've grown up being treated that way. And in fact, that was the case. We read about... Uh, Jacob, it says, Isaac, his father, loved his brother Esau in Genesis 25:28, And then it says, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so here Jacob was the son that was not loved as much by his father, but more by his mother. And then he himself has a favorite. And he plays out this cycle from generation to generation. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jacob had this same fault. But I want to encourage us to repent of this, to ask our wives or husbands to point it out. I've had Mary Lee at times point out to me that I was giving preferential treatment to one child over another or saying things that weren't good. Um, of course, I don't have favorites um, other than Taylor because he's my youngest child of my old age. That's a joke. We ought not, though, to have favorites, and this is something that we can use the help of our wives and husbands um, in, in avoiding because it can poison the home. 
and uh, it should not poison the Christian home. Second, the second cause of hatred in Jacob's home is almost as obvious. Joseph himself was what we could say is a better prophet than a politician. Um, He didn't seem to have the gift that most 17-year-olds lack, namely the gift of tact. He was constantly parading his special position. And then the dreams on top of it. So you add to favoritism a son who, even to his father, says, and you're going to bow down to me too. I had a dream. It's going to happen. Even his father who loves him is irritated with him and rebukes him. Did you notice that? So tactless added to favoritism. The third cause of hatred is the more offensive of Joseph attributes. You might have missed it. And that is, look at verse 2 with me, if you would, please. Did you see it? It says, Joseph was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And then what does it say? And Joseph what? Brought back a bad report about them to their father. We have learned in grammar school that the worst offense, worse than cheating, worse than lying, worse than fighting on the playground, is to be a tattletale. And very quickly, our culture teaches us that the most important thing is that we get along with each other. In fact, that really is the only value left in America, other than that smoking is bad. Getting along with each other and smoking is bad. And Jacob Bronowski was right. Look at the ascent of man. That was a cynical statement. (laughs) But the Bible presents something very different. The Bible presents that the most glorious heroes of Scripture are the prophets. Why? Because the prophets tell the people, you're bad and God's going to get you. Unless you repent and are good, and then the blessings of God will come down on you. And in fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, you will see a very explicit command in the New Testament about what our duty is in connection with badness. If you find out that we're all to be following Christ and being prophets. We see there in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even what? Expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And if you look at the life of Christ and you try to think, did Christ or did Christ not expose the evil of his day? And you have trouble answering the question. You don't know Jesus at all. Not at all. Because Christ's entire ministry had a constant theme, not just of a king and a priest, but definitely of a prophet. And so Joseph was a prophet. He spoke and named the evil. He was faithful to do this. Now, any time we have the ministry of a prophet, if you'll turn with me to Proverbs 9, verse 8, you'll see that we have a choice. And the choice is to either love or to hate that ministry. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. Look there with me, please. There we read what? It says, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. And the older you get in the pastorate, the more you love people who are teachable. Because you spend so much of your time having people hate you when you have to follow through on your duty of reproving them. Joseph's brothers had a choice. 
When he rebuked them and exposed their evil, they could love him or they could hate them. And depending upon what their response was, they were either scoffers or they were wise men. And we see that Joseph's brothers were scoffers. They were fools. They would not accept rebuke, would they? And so there we get to the fourth reason. You can say that, you know, his father played favorites, gave him a special robe. You can say that Joseph was tactless. And, you know, you can say that Joseph rebuked them. But then finally, you're left with this fourth reason, namely, that they chose to hate him. They chose to nurture hatred and bitterness and envy in their hearts. Did you see that? Did you see where it speaks in verse 11 of this? In Genesis chapter 37, it says this. It says, His brothers were what? Were jealous of him. And you have the same choice in your life. You have the choice of either rejoicing in the good gifts that God gives to others, including their dreams, including when they're tactless, including when they're your father's favorite, or hating them. Now, we don't have as much sibling hatred today, I think, partly because our families are so small. I mean, just the the, the number of people that can hate each other. But boy, you go to the Wegner's home and you look... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'll never forget one day there was a young woman in my church who was sad, crying. And I thought, oh, the poor woman, I'll go help her. So I went into a room and shut the door after talking to her mother, and there were a bunch of people all around. And I sat her down, and I said, now what's the problem? And out of that woman came the most terrible bile of hatred and jealousy for her sister. It like my hair was plastered back on my head. I had thought I was being magnanimous and going in to love this young woman and just encourage her. And what I found was she was inconsolable because she hated her sister. She just hated her. Well, some of us need to repent of our hatred. Now, you might think, how is Tim taking a story about a type of Christ and turning it into a a morality tale about how we should live in our homes. Well, the beautiful thing is that everything going on in this home, and yes, you shouldn't hate, you shouldn't be jealous, you shouldn't murder, uh, you shouldn't play favorites. As all of that is going on, what is really going on? What's the subtext? Well, if you'll look back with me at Genesis chapter 15, you'll see the subtext to all of this. The subtext to all of this is God is doing precisely what he told Abram that he was going to do. In Genesis 15, beginning with verse 4, we read that when God made his covenant with Abram, he said, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be my heir, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir, Ishmael and uh, Isaac. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So this is the promised land. I'm going to give you this land to possess. But then what does he say? Look at verse 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So what's really going on here is, The family is becoming a nation. The nation is about to be taken into the land for 400 years that will come before the land 
becomes theirs. All right? So God's using these terrible situations in the home to accomplish his purpose of moving this family becoming a nation into another country where they will be enslaved for 400 years. Okay? Now, here's the really weird thing. Why is God doing this? Why is God delaying giving this land to them? Let's keep reading. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here for what? For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, God doesn't have trouble controlling evil for his purposes. Do you see that? The evil of the father's favoritism, the evil of the son's jealousy, the evil of Joseph's tactlessness, the evil of the nation of Egypt, but it'll end up giving you possessions, and then the evil of the Amorites that is not yet complete, but when it's complete after 400 years, then this land will become yours. Every single bit of the evil is controlled. Now, this should be a great encouragement to you, because many of you are suffering under evil. You're suffering under the evil of sickness, under the evil of torment of family members who are unfaithful to their vows, the evil of all kinds of oppression and things you think are out of the control of God. Not for a minute. Not for a minute. God is not impotent. Every single thing that is done on this earth brings about his purposes. Every single thing. And that's cause to celebrate. Because no matter what you suffer, it's not lost on God. God doesn't become your debtor when you suffer. You don't have to ask God why. You, you need to ask him when. And here the answer is 400 years. And why? Because the Amorites' wickedness is not yet full. When they are so wicked that my time of judgment will break in, then your people will be brought back and you'll inherit the promise. And now, right now, we're going to give Joseph a nasty life because it will bring you down so that then the Amorites can fill the wickedness and then you can come back and get the land because their wickedness will be full and I will then be ready to judge them. So look at the big picture, but also bring love and holiness to your home.